women's ministry. There will be uh, the next event is Tuesday, January 14th at 4:30 here, and I'm going to be the speaker. Yeah, it's really interesting. <laughs> okay, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness, so I'll give you a moment to do that. I'll open us up with a word of prayer, and we'll start talking about Tyre this morning. Father, we thank you that we can come to the throne of grace and confess our sins and you restore us to fellowship. Uh, we know that we are placed in a familial relationship with you the moment we believe, but we can break that fellowship, that family bond, by committing personal sins, and we are restored when we confess those sins, and you are so gracious and merciful. You even forget, forgive us of those sins that don't come to mind at that moment when we're confessing our sins. So we thank you for all of these things that are made possible through Christ and the work that he did on the cross on our behalf. We're so very grateful for that, and particularly at this time of year, at Christmas time, as we uh, acknowledge his birth, whether it was this time of year or not, we doubt that it was, but nevertheless, this is when we celebrate it. And it's the, the most amazing gift given to mankind that God became man to save us from our sins and give us eternal life if we simply believe in who he is and what he did on the cross. During this time of year, Father, there are many people in our body who are traveling. We pray for safety for them as they travel, as they interact with people in their lives, friends and relatives and so forth who may be unsaved. I pray that each one of us would be a light of truth and grace and mercy to them and perhaps be able to share the gospel with them during this Christmas season and, and uh, perhaps then some hearts will be changed as you open their eyes and their hearts to listen to the message and, and to place their faith in Christ just like each and every one of us did. Uh, we pray for safety as people travel. Father, we have friends, the Jacoby family, who is in Mexico at this time, and they're in a place that's not so particularly safe, and we pray for their safety and their well-being, and we pray for their daughter that uh, whatever malady she was experiencing uh, yesterday goes away and she's not seriously ill during this trip, and we pray for their safe return. And we pray for that for everyone in our body, Lord, as we travel around, whether it's uh, down the street or around the country or even in another country somewhere. We have a lot of people traveling, and we pray for their safety and their well-being. But most of all, Father, we know that there are problems in this world, and we pray that as we move about, that we keep our eyes focused on Jesus and on with a biblical, eternal worldview, understanding these things in this life are short and that eternity is very long and we're in preparation for serving you for eternity. So help us do that. Help us learn the Word of God that leads us and guides us and helps prepare us for that time. And we look forward to the time when Jesus comes back and we all enter into his presence and are able to serve him and glorify his name and your name forever and forever. Uh, bless his study this morning in the book of Isaiah, chapter 23. And we pray that uh, people are learning and growing and understanding your plan for history by studying this amazing prophetical book. So we thank you for your presence with us here today in this house. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we are going to talk about judgment on Tyre today in Isaiah, chapter 23. 
Tyre, of course, was a city-state in what we would now know as Lebanon. The city's on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, just north of the border with Israel, about 15 miles. It consisted of a coastal city and an island a half mile offshore, and it was closely related to Sidon, which was a city only a few miles to the north. Tyre and Sidon were often referred to as though they were the same place. The adjective Sidonian was used to represent the citizens of Tyre, and Tyre is frequently mentioned in the scriptures, and the city had an impact on biblical history. The first known mention of Tyre was in an Egyptian papyrus dated to the 14th century B.C. The Greek historian Herodotus dates it back to 2740 B.C. But I suspect it was probably inhabited even before the Tower of Babel incident, since it's in close proximity to Mesopotamia there. And the island city was naturally defensible, and invaders had a difficult time conquering it. I've got a few maps here. Um, this is Lebanon today with Tyre right down here just on the northern border with Israel or real close to it. And you can see on these maps, you can see where there, there was the city Tyre which was on the mainland and then there was the island fortress out here, also Tyre connected with the city. And it was quite a fortress until Alexander the Great built this causeway. It's about a half mile across here, uh, bridging the gap here from the mainland over to the island. Of course, he was then able to attack the island and defeat it. You can see from this picture down here below in the middle that the island is now connected to the shore. And what happened here after this, I think you can see a little bit of the old causeway that Alexander built right across here. But what happened here was once the, this causeway was built, it interrupted the flow of the water around there and the sand built up around there. And as you can see from this aerial photo here, the satellite picture, um, that's built up now with house. I've got a better picture of it in a second. That's built up now, but you see it, you would never know that had been an island at one time if you didn't know it from history. And here you can see how much better it's built up. And here's Alexander's Causeway was right through this area right here. And you see here some of the ruins of the old city, the Hippodrome here and so forth. And here are some photos just of... Uh, the ruins of the old city on the on the mainland. Now the Sidonians worshipped a god named Eshmun, and the people of Tyre worshipped Melquart, both of whom had the goddess consort Astronoe, uh, which represents the familiar mother-child fertility cult. The gods are the same, only the names change. Ishtar and Tammuz in Babylon and Isis and Osiris in Egypt and so forth. And there were China, China and India and all sorts of places had different iterations of this mother-child cult, but it was still the same thing. Uh, Tyre was known as a business community engaging in commerce throughout the Mediterranean, Mesopotamia and Ar Arabia region. They traded in cedar timber, the purple dye made from the murex shellfish along the coast of Lebanon. They traded in dyed cloth and their fleets hired out to carry cargo of various sorts, uh, wheat, tin, and tin ore, gold, silver, and copper. So they were the merchant ships of their time in addition to being a welcoming port of call for the ships of other nations in the area wishing to do business with them and from them, of course, out into the area. Uh, from the time of Isaiah to Alexander, the nation was under attack at least five times, serious attack. 
Nebuchadnezzar attempted to capture Tyre and used siege warfare against it for 13 years, from 585 to 572. Now that siege drained Tyre's wealth and resulted in the death of many men, but whether or not Nebuchadnezzar ever actually ca captured the island state is in dispute. Now when the city was under attack on the mainland, the people would withdraw to the island and wait out the danger. How would you like to leave your home and 13 years later you're still under siege and everything back there has been destroyed? Uh, in 332 BC is when Alexander the Great built that causeway from the mainland to the island using materials from the destroyed parts of the city, which then allowed him to conquer the island portion after a seven-month-long military campaign. The inhabitants paid dearly for trying the great conqueror's patience. It is said that he crucified 2,000 of the leaders and sold 30,000 people into slavery. Uh, the water between the mainland and the island is only about 18 feet deep, which made it relatively easy to build this embankment from the mainland out to the island. And then, as I showed you in the pictures here, of course, the island is now connected to the mainland because that causeway caused the sand to silt up, and apparently it is stable enough that they've built buildings on it now. King Hiram, you might remember him from his interaction with David and Solomon, and Ahab's wife Jezebel were probably the two most famous people from the Tyre, Sidon area mentioned in the Bible. In addition to Isaiah, Ezekiel 26, 27, and 28 deals with Tyre and the city's judgment at the hands of God. The Lord visited Tyre, and see that in Matthew 15, 21, and Paul was in the city for seven days in Acts 21. So now this next oracle, you, you know we've been going through Isaiah here, and we've had these series of oracles. So this next oracle here concerns the fall of Tyre and end times restoration. These oracles against the nations, all of them surrounding Israel, began with Babylon and end with Tyre. Babylon, of course, was a ruthless military power on land, and Tyre was a peaceful but economically ruthless seafaring economic power. Babylon represents the corruption and the wickedness of brute military power. Tyre symbolizes the international trade and commerce which does not seek to serve God or humanity, but is merely interested in the selfish accumulation of wealth. So these are both elements then of the end times Babylonian world system. Just as we noted that there will be Egyptians who are saved at the end, the oracle indicates there will be people of Tyre come to faith as well. And this is a picture of the blessing Gentiles experience by coming to faith, which is a truth applicable now and at the end of the tribulation as well. So let's look at Isaiah 23, verse 1. The oracle concerning Tyre, Wail, O ships of Tarshish, for Tyre is destroyed. Without house or harbor, it is reported to them from the land of Cyprus. Now Tyre was obviously a very small place in terms of size, but it played a very important role in the economies of the nations around the Mediterranean Sea. History has shown a number of small countries, some of them little more than city-states, that have had a disproportionate influence because of their possession of fine harbors and strong commercial instincts and skills. Venice, Genoa, and the cities of the Hanseatic League 
which I had to look up. I didn't know what that was. And it's a medieval association of northern German cities. Our examples from the past, while Singapore and the Netherlands with its great port of Rotterdam are modern examples. So this is nothing new. There have been trading centers like this throughout history. The geographical location of Tarshish, referencing the ships of Tarshish, is not clearly revealed, but most likely it seems that it refers to a place in southern Spain called Tartessus, which had a mining industry. And you may recall that it seems that this was the place to which Jonah was fleeing when he was running from God's command to preach the good news to the Ninevites. He was going to some place called Tarshish at least, and presumably it would have been the same place. Uh, they obviously had a, a lucrative trading relationship with Tyre. And ships of Tarshish is thought to be a reference to the largest ships of the day capable of long voyages and, and large payloads. Some theologians also think the Mediterranean Sea may have been known as the Sea of Tarshish. But regardless, when Tyre is destroyed, these ships have lost what was probably the most lucrative part of their commercial activities. It was a distribution port for the entire Mediterranean Sea, and its destruction would create an economic calamity in the region. Now, no one really knows exactly what ancient event this scripture may be describing, but Tyre will be completely destroyed, including the harbor. The ships of Tarshish received the news from Cyprus, which served as a point of call for the merchant ships going to and from Tyre while en route to Tyre. Now, it's interesting to note that the word whale here is lilu, meaning to howl, to wail, referring to making a loud crying and shrill shouting noise of sorrow. But what's interesting is that's, a, that's in an imperative form. It's a command. It's a reference to mourning. Therefore, God was commanding them to mourn over the loss of Tyre that was being imposed on them. The word, I don't think I have that, Sidon is Sidon in the Hebrew, and it was also a point, port city lacking the natural protection of the island section of Tyre. So the mainland cities of both Tyre and Sidon suffered at the hands of the surrounding nations. They were often subjected to paying tribute to foreign kings. But after Alexander, both cities then became Greek and then Roman, and probably eventually losing all their Phoenician identity. The people of Sidon were well known as artisans fashioning silver objects and carving ivory. Isaiah 23, 2 and 3. Be silent, you inhabitants of the coastland, you merchants of Sidon. Your messengers crossed the sea and were on many waters. The grain of the Nile, the harvest of the river, was her revenue, and she was the market of nations. So this word silent is damam, and it means to be silent or to be still. It's often used in the context of catastrophe and mourning. This word is also in the imperative mood, making it a command. So through the destruction of the city now, Tyre is going to be silenced. In this context, it has the sense of being astonished and confounded with grief. Its proper meaning, therefore, is to be dumb which means not to be able to speak, doesn't have anything to do with intelligence, which is applied both to silence and quietness 
and also to the stupefaction of one who is lost in wonder and astonishment, and also in the causative and transitive conjugations it is applied to destruction and desolation, inasmuch as things or places which are destroyed and made desolate are still and quiet. So we really have both things going on here. It's destroyed, and the people are kind of like, you remember the, the, mod, the Iraq war, the air campaign was called shock and awe. That's kind of what these people are seeing. They're being on the receiving end of something like shock and awe. Now, this word may also mean uh, to wail, and because so much of Hebrew consists of parallelisms, it's quite possible that this word in this context also means wail to parallel the word translated wail in verse 1. And in fact, the, the Tanakh translates these two words in 1 and 2 as howl and moan. So there's a dispute whether the second use of the word actually means silent. It may mean moaning or wailing also in that verse. So it's easy, though, to understand that the concepts of wailing and silence are connected with these events because the people will be in mourning over these horrible things that have happened to them and around them. That's a natural reaction. We would feel the same way. But it's not so easy to understand why these are in the, these are in the form of imperative verbs. Uh, it seems unnecessary to command them to do things that indicate mourning because mourning is something that comes naturally to people. So I can't really explain why God is commanding them to do these things when these seem to be the natural result of what's happening to them in the first place. And it's also easy to make the connection with the end times destruction of Babylon in Revelation 18. I think this is so obvious that it simply can't be missed. Tyre has to be considered a type of the end times economic system that will be part of Antichrist's world system encompassing government, religion, and economics, all of which will be destroyed by God. So let's look at that in Revelation 18, 11 to 19. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn over her, because no one buys their cargoes anymore, cargoes of gold and silver and precious stones and pearls and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet and every kind of citron wood and every article of ivory and every article made from very costly wood and bronze and iron and marble and cinnamon and spice and incense and perfume and frankincense and wine and olive oil and fine flour and wheat and cattle and sheep and cargoes of horses and chariots and slaves and human lives. The fruit you long for has gone from you and all things that were luxurious and splendid have passed away from you and men will no longer find them. The merchants of these things who became rich from her will stand at a distance because of the fear of her torment, weeping and mourning, saying, Whoa, whoa, the great city, she who was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, for one hour such great wealth has been laid waste, and every shipmaster and every passenger and sailor and as many as make their living by the sea stood at a distance, and were crying out as they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What city is like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads and were crying out, weeping and mourning, saying, Whoa, whoa, the great city in which all who had ships at sea became rich by her wealth, for in one hour she has been laid waste. So these 
Isaiah verses here indicate the extent of Tyre's economic influence. Tyre's economic emissaries crossed the sea and were on many waters. The grain of the Nile is a reference to the food crops, specifically, I think, wheat, that was transported from Egypt to Tyre for distribution around the Mediterranean Sea. Tyre's destruction would have had a significant impact on the economy of Egypt. They would be unable to get their grain to market for distribution. And if you're a grain farmer, even yet today, you know how important it is to get your crops to the local elevator so that they can go on and be distributed wherever they need to go. If you don't have that local elevator, you don't have a way to distribute your crops. And that's a devastating thing for a farmer who is growing things to be distributed. Verse 4, Be ashamed, O Sidon, for the sea speaks, the stronghold of the sea, saying, I have neither travailed nor given birth, I have neither brought up young men nor reared virgins. So this is an example of the almost synonymous relationship between Tyre and Sidon. They were closely aligned Phoenician cities with ports and both engaged in trade throughout the Mediterranean and the Middle East area. They were dependent on one another for their economic successes. The oracle is directed at Tyre Yet Sidon is included in the judgment alongside the city of Tyre, and they are as affected as Tyre is affected in this situation. And disagreement exists concerning whether or not Sidon was destroyed or just moaning over the mourning rather over the destruction of Tyre. And Sidon probably represents here the totality of Phoenicia lamenting the demise of Tyre. No one really knows, but the destruction of Tyre would so disrupt the economic system in the area that it would feel as though Sidon was destroyed as well. So through the prophet and the use of figurative language, God gives voice to the stronghold of the sea, which is grieved over the loss of the ships that used to sail the waters engaging in commerce all over the area, and to the stronghold or fortress of the sea, which is a reference to the island city's neighbor. The word stronghold here, which is ma'oz, refers to a place of refuge, a sanctuary, a place of safety. So the people of the once proud Sidon Tyre cities will be ashamed when their world comes crashing down around their heads. The word ashamed is bosh, and it means to be ashamed, referring to being or becoming characterized by feelings of shame, guilt, embarrassment, or remorse. So because Tyre has lost her ships and her people, she's compared to a barren woman who never experienced birth and raising children at all. She's lost everything, making it seem as though she never had anything. And in that culture, at that point in time, the state of being barren was a shameful, shameful thing for women and their families. So the effects then of Tyre's destruction are widespread and felt by those around who participated in her economic system, which benefited everyone. Verses 5 and 6. When the report reaches Egypt, they will be in anguish at the report of Tyre. Pass over to Tarshish. Wail, O inhabitants of the coastland. So apparently Egypt was so economically dependent on Tyre that her security was threatened. And whether or not it was physically threatened by the entity that destroyed Tyre is not known, but her economic security was certainly 
jeopardized. And if it was Alexander the Great, if this is the incident they're talking about, and it probably is, he did go on to conquer Egypt later. And the people of Tyre needed to flee for their lives by traveling to Tarshish. Now, whether this became historical fact at the time, we're not told, but presumably it did happen. We do know that when Alexander the Great was on the march against Tyre, the wealthy of that nation at that time sent their young and their elders to Carthage in North Africa for safety. They didn't send them to Spain or Tarshish. They sent them to Carthage. It would not have been unheard of at that time for some of them to travel to Tarshish for refuge. The Septuagint actually uses Carthage in this verse, uh, but the Masoretic text clearly says Tarshish. Now, we have to remember that the text or texts that the Septuagint used predate, predate the Masoretic text by hundreds of years, which would tend to validate the Septuagint's reliability. But if Tar Tarshish is the location in question, it was the place they could go to that would get them the furthest away from the calamity occurring in Tyre. So in other words, the point is they were going to flee and go somewhere else, whether it was Carthage in North Africa or Tarshish in Spain. They were going to go somewhere else. The citizens of the coastlands are also commanded to wail, and the effects of Tyre's downfall are going to be felt throughout the region. This is no small, locally significant issue only. It affects the entire Mediterranean region. Some theologians want to restrict the meaning of coastland to just the Phoenician people there around what we would now call Lebanon in Canaan, but the context suggests a broader meaning. Uh, the, the word coastland is E, and it means an island or a coastland. In other words, land that lies on a coastal area and in general refers to the islands, the shores, and coastlands here of the Mediterranean Sea. Given the fact that Egypt and Tarshish are in the immediate context, I wouldn't restrict it to the Phoenicians, but I consider it a reference to the Mediterranean region. Now, people are going to look at this destroyed city and question how this could happen to such a powerful, wealthy place. Verse 7, Is this your jubilant city, whose origin is from antiquity, whose feet used to carry her to colonize distant places? Now, this question expresses amazement that a city which was riding so high that it was full of joy, a city that had existed since ancient times and become so prosperous, a city that colonized faraway places with which to conduct business could be so fallen so quickly. And the prophet's going to provide that answer. And then the question then asked, who did this in verse 8? Who has planned this against Tyre, the bestower of crowns, whose merchants were princes, whose traders were the honored of the earth? So Tyre is described here in godlike, reverent terms, which characterizes the attitude people held about the city. The rulers of Tyre bestowed crowns on people, or at least influenced who received a crown. That represents power. That's real power when you can influence a people into picking the king for them that you want them to pick because it's favorable to you. Uh, the rulers of Tyre bestowed, I'm sorry, that rep the, the, the merchants were princes. That is, they were considered princes in that they were wealthy and the ruling class. Their business emissaries were honored wherever they went. 
in their minds, they had it all, wealth and power. Has that changed today? Don't people with wealth and power think they're just it? They've got everything, when in reality, if they're apart from Jesus Christ, they have nothing. So the reality is that they had nothing. They had nothing then. We have nothing today when we have that same mindset, no matter how wealthy we are, no matter how powerful position we hold. The question concerns the amazement shown by the people observing these things, which caused them to wonder how such a magnificent, powerful city-state could be so quickly decimated. But the prophet next answered the question, who has done this, verses 9 to 11, He says, the Lord of hosts has planned it to defile the pride of all beauty, to despise all the honored of the earth. Overflow your land like the Nile, O daughter of Tarsus. There is no more restraint. He has stretched his hand out over the sea. He has made the kingdoms tremble. The Lord has given a command concerning Canaan to demolish its strongholds. Now, so what's happening here is not some accident of history. It is something that is planned by God, and it therefore must come to pass. The word planned here is yoates, and it means to plan, to devise, to determine. The plan is to defile and despise Tyre. And pride seems to be at the root of the nation's problem with God. The word defile is halal, means to pollute to defile, to profane. In this context, it's referring to casting down and destroying. And the word despise is kalal, and it means to be small, to be insignificant. So in this context, it's referring to humbling and treating with contempt by invoking divine harm and or evil on Tyre. So God's got a plan for them in response to their pride, and it's going to end up not being very good for them. The use of the words all and earth in here suggests a long-term implication for this prophecy. In the short term, it's regional in scope. The kingdoms throughout the region are afraid of what's happening around them. But these things are types of the end times as well, as we noted when we read the scripture in Revelation 18. The the text suggests that God has summoned, summoned those regional kingdoms to act as his agents in the destruction of the city-state Tyre. Now, this word restraint that's used in these verses is very difficult, and I don't know that I can explain it well. It's not not defined well, so it's hard to figure out exactly what it means. The word is uh, mezach, and it formally means a girdle, a belt, or a waistband. And it's thought to be a loan word from the Egyptian language. So this is an unusual, difficult word to find out the meaning. There is thought to be another meaning referring to a harbor or a port for ships. So if so, then the word would refer to a relatively protected cove or area where the land or sea meet, apparently as an extension of a place where wind and wave are restrained, in other words, a harbor. The land is going to overflow, which would in that case be considered to be a reference to the destruction that the flooding Nile River can generate, and it will result in the destruction of Tyre's infrastructure, including the harbor. The Tanakh and the Lexham English Bible use the, actually use the word harbor in their translations. If harbor is the meaning, and there does, 
doesn't seem to me to be much lexical support for that. I, I searched for it. I couldn't find much for it. Our English, our English versions, the more, majority of which do use the word restraint, are misleading. If it's supposed to be harbor, then restraint is kind of misleading. In English, restraint means a measure or condition that keeps someone or something under control or within limits, whereas harbor would be a reference to a place of refuge. And But using the word restraint can refer back to this original meaning of girdle, belt, or waistband. But I think there is a way to understand this verse that's supported by the context. So once God has tired, destroyed... Tarshish would be freed from the domination of the Mediterranean marketplace that Tyre controlled. And the merchants of Tarshish would be free to expand their business interests in the region at the expense of Tyre. In that case, the word would properly be translated girdle, which is how Young's literal translation has it, referring to the tight, trussed-up control that Tyre formerly had over the economic system of the region that was now broken because the girdle was removed. So this definition seems to be the best way to understand the verse <clears throat> because a girdle can have the sense of restraining or encircling and therefore restricting something, which is certainly why the word restraint has been so extensively used in this verse. So the interpretation seems to fit the lexical meaning of the word and the context of the verse much better than using the word harbor. So I think our translations that use the word restraint are good. I think using girdle would, like Young did would be better, give us a sense of what it's actually meaning. So this is a continuation then of the picture that's presented in these judgment oracles of God's dealings with the Gentiles and with Israel throughout history. Gentiles will experience the wrath of God temporally and in exponentially worse ways in the day of the Lord, and Israel will experience temporal discipline throughout her history, culminating in the tribulation when the remnant of Israel who inherit the kingdom of God is identified. So the sea then was the conduit for Tyre's ability to trade throughout the region, and Tyre considered herself to be the master of her domain. The creator, though, was really in control of the seas, not Tyre, and he was going to disrupt Tyre's ability to make her living from using the sea. And that truth is pictured through the metaphor of God's outstretched hand over the sea, but that figure of speech may be applied to the whole of creation in the end times as well. Anytime God desires to intervene in nature and impact human affairs, he's free to do so. He has the power to do so, and the creature can do nothing to stop it. The word command, tsawa, means to give an order, to direct, to command, referring to the act of charging someone to do something. It has the sense of force and authority behind it, which makes the command something that others must do. And the object of this command is not just Tyre, it's Canaan as a regional entity. And while, you know, we, man can resist God's commands, but ultimately they're going to do what he wants to do or they're going to suffer the judgment for it, which is what we see going on here. But these things are going to happen whether people like it or not. 
The word demolish is shamad, and it means to be exterminated or destroyed. It's a strong word. It has a sense of complete destruction and irreparable damage. It usually involves a sudden catastrophe such as warfare or a mass killing, but it may be the result of attrition caused by famine and oppression. God may be the cause of the destruction, whether it's the result of his direct involvement or by means of using people as his instrument of divine destruction. Tyre was not completely destroyed as an independent political entity until Alexander the Great conquered it and the Romans took control of the area and all the trading colonies ringing the Mediterranean. Therefore, this scripture is describing some of the problems Tyre suffered under Assyrian and Babylonian attacks leading up to the end of the nation, which disrupted their business interests, cost many of Tyre's citizens their lives, and caused people to flee the nation for places of refuge. Today, of course, as I showed you, Tyre is part of Lebanon, which is still, what, an enemy of Israel. I mean, that place has got thousands and thousands of rockets coming in from Iran pointed at Israel. Now, Phoenicia was referred to here as Canaan, but if that's the meaning, it's the only place in the Old Testament where that occurs. Canaan was never and has never been completely destroyed, but neither has Phoenicia been completely destroyed at any time in history. There have been people in that area opposed to God and Israel since the beginning, and that opposition has yet to be completely eliminated. One day, the strongholds of the entire region known as Canaan will be permanently destroyed. Now, in verse 4, the stronghold referred to a place of safety, the harbor, but here it refers to a fortified location, which we would call a fortress. The Bible connects... The Bible connects God with his people by referring to him as a refuge or as the fortress or the stronghold for them. In the same way, the Canaanites believed, although mistakenly, that their gods were refuge and a fortress or a stronghold for them. So God was not only going to destroy their physical fortified cities, but he was going to shatter the trust they had in their false gods. Verse 12, he has said, you shall exult no more, O crushed virgin daughter of Sidon. Arise, pass over to Cyprus. Even there you will find no rest. So the word exult is alaz, and it means to rejoice, to be exultant, to be jubilant, referring to being in a reveling state of great joy and happiness. So when this word is used of Israel's opponents, it has a sense of gloating or haughty self-confidence and insolence. The word crushed, ashak, means to oppress, exploit, wrong, or extort, referring to coming down on or keeping down by the unjust use of authority one holds over another. It has the sense of treating one unjustly and violently. In this context, the actions taken by God to crush Tyre are holy and just. He can do nothing else. So what I'm saying here is this word has evil negative connotations. But when God crushes something, it's holy and righteous and just because he's doing it from pure righteous motives where we don't operate that way. As the creator God, 
he has the right to deal with his creation in any manner he sees fit to do so. The word as used here is describing the consequences of God's judgment. It's not describing the motives behind God doing his judgment. But we know his motives are righteous and just. Now God ridiculed the Phoenicians by encouraging them to escape to Cyprus, knowing that even there they would not find peace, safety, and refuge characterized here as rest. The leaders of the nations in those areas were so afraid of Assyria and following them of Babylon that they were not about to let Assyrian and Babylonian adversaries find refuge in their kingdom. They were going to do that. For over 200 years, these two nations terrorized the region, including Tyre and Sidon. So why would Cyprus want to invite people into their place to hide them from people that were people you should be deathly afraid of? The Assyrians might have been the most wicked evil people ever and they gloried in it you can go you can find uh, photographs in, in encyclopedias and whatnot where they're so proud of what they do they they have engraved in stone showing them uh, flaying people alive skinning people alive while they're tied to the ground and those kinds of things that they do to people torturing them it's just uh, it's an evil mindset that they have now the next verses reveal the power of Assyrian aggression. She dominated Babylon for a time. Verse 13. Behold the land of the Chaldeans, that is Babylon. This is the people which was not. Assyria appointed it for desert creatures. They erected their siege towers. They stripped its palaces. They made it a ruin. So the Assyrians once controlled Babylon by defeating the Chaldeans and forcing them to settle in the southern Euphrates River Valley thus becoming the people which was not. Sargon II attacked Babylon in 710 B.C., and Sennacherib destroyed it in 689 B.C. Sennacherib put down a revolt by Merodach Baladan by attacking the city of Babylon, or the cities of Babylon, tearing down its fortresses, making it a place of wild animals, and turning the land into ruins. Now that great country is nothing. God can do this to Babylon, why can he not do the same to Tyre or any other nation? Now Babylon obviously wasn't totally destroyed. It was still there. The Assyrians controlled it, but eventually they were defeated and Babylon took over. And they turned the tables on Assyria and consigned that nation to the dustbin of history. They're gone, but that was still in the future at the time that Isaiah was writing this prophecy. Now verse 14 then serves as a bookend to verse 1. It says, Wail, O ships of Tarshish, for your stronghold is destroyed. It may have appeared that Tarshish stood to benefit from the demise of Tyre's control of the economy of the region, but once Tyre was gone, the entire system of trade was disrupted, so everybody suffered. The major distribution hub was also gone, therefore there was not only a devastated economic system, but no centralized coordinating location from which to conduct business. Now in the final verses of this chapter, chapter 23, there's a short-term element. Tyre would be restored. But after that, there's also a long-term element that Tyre will be a blessing to the world. Verses 15 to 17. Now in that day, Tyre will be forgotten for 70 years like the days of one king. 
At the end of 70 years, it will happen to Tyre, as in the song of the harlot. Take your harp, walk around the city, O forgotten harlot. Pluck the strings skillfully, sing many songs that you may be remembered. It will come about at the end of 70 years that the Lord will visit Tyre. Then she will go back to her harlot's wages and will play the harlot with all the kingdoms on the face of the earth. So in that day has an eschatological sense to it here. It's in the sense of both a short-term prophecy and a long-term end-times prophecy. Once Medo-Persia conquered Babylon, Tyre was free to rebuild the economic system it originally built if the nation was able to do so. Exactly when that began is unknown. So after 70 years, Tyre will seek her former customers. Isaiah compares Tyre to a pathetic old harlot who, forced by poverty and old age, goes out into the streets to ply her former trade. Tyre did everything for financial gain, just as a prostitute does. Money was the sole motivating factor for Tyre's existence. The satisfaction of human wants, lusts, and desires is uppermost on the world's mind, making this comparison between Tyre and a harlot very appropriate. And nothing has changed from then till now in the hearts of men in terms of lusting for power, pleasure, wealth, all of those kinds of things that people still lust after. No one knows exactly what the 70 years means since it was rare for a king to live long enough to reign for 70 years, especially during a time in history when the typical lifespan was considerably less. The most common thought is that this time period refers to the period of time from about 700 to 630 BC, during which the Assyrians restricted Tyre's ability to conduct their economic activities. Since the Bible is so specific concerning that time period, I think we can be certain that God meant 70 years of, for this to happen, whether we know the beginning and any points of that time period or not. Whether we know exactly when this was and how it was, I think based on the text, we can understand there's a period of 70 years there when something is going on as directed that in these scriptures. So it'll be the Lord's doing that reestablishes Tyre's business. The nation will no, no longer be able to drum up business on her own. Tyre won't change the manner business was conducted, but she'll conduct business with everyone. Doing business with all the kingdoms on the face of the earth has eschatological overtones concerning the end times economic system that will be conducting business worldwide. As we read, it, read in Revelation 18, how much the world will be bewailing the destruction of Babylon's economic system at the end. Tyre never conducted business with all the kingdoms on the face of the earth in the past when she was an active economic power in the region of the Mediterranean Sea. Tyre covered a lot of trading territory from Asia to southern Europe and to North Africa, but it did not interact with kingdoms from all over the globe. That system that's being pictured by Tyre, this end-time Babylon economic system, will impact the entire globe at the end. Now, Tyre was destroyed, as we've learned, by Alexander the Great, but it must have continued in some form only to be completely co-opted by the Romans when they came to power in the region. The world economic system operates on the worldly principles of Tyre to this day, but Tyre itself exists only in the form of a city in Lebanon. 
So Tyre was a type of the ultimate one-world economic system to come at the end, and that it makes a very significant factor, and that makes it a very significant factor in terms of world history. Not Tyre the location, Tyre the concept of an economic economic uh, system that will be expressed as Babylon in the tribulation. That's what makes Tyre so important still to us today. Someday Tyre will be a nation that turns to the Lord and serves him, but that's not happened to this day. Uh, There was a time when Tyre was an ally of the Israelites, but that occurred early in their history, particularly in terms of King Hiram's relationship to David and Solomon, and that'll change in the future. Tyre did do business with the Israelites when they returned to Jerusalem from Babylon and sold them building materials for the temple, but that was strictly business. You couldn't really say they were great close friends or anything at that time. And there was a period, of course, when Lebanon had a lot of Christian influence in it, but since Islam has gained uh, power over the region, that has pretty much gone away. Verse 18, Her gain and her harlot's wages will be set apart to the Lord. It will not be stored up or hoarded, but her, ca- but her gain will become sufficient food and choice attire for those who dwell in the presence of the Lord. So the Bible tells us that Tyre, along with citizens of all the other nations of the world, will one day turn to the Lord. In the kingdom, all the economic activity occurring in the world is going to be dedicated to serving God for the glory of God. The psalmist specifically mentioned ancient foes of God in Israel who be believers one day. But we know that all the nations of the world will be believers during the kingdom dispensation. But if we look back at Psalm 87.4, it reads, I shall mention Rahab, which is a name for Egypt, and Babylon among those who know me. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Ethiopia. This one was born there. And in Revelation 21, 24 to 7, at the end, we know this will be true. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed, and they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it, and nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So this ends the section of Isaiah that concerns the oracles against the nations. The primary lesson for Israel in this was to trust Yahweh, not the nations. From Babylon to Tyre, the nations were going to fail no matter how wealthy and powerful they had become. These nations represent what the world considered to be significant then, now, and in the future. The world is the same, only the actors have changed as time marches on. When seen this way, chapters 13 to 23 seem to be saying that since the glory of the nations equals nothing, and since the scheming of the nations equals nothing, and since the wisdom of the nations equals nothing, and since the vision of this nation equals nothing, and since the wealth of the nations equals nothing, Don't trust the nations. The same is true today. If we believe that a system of alliances can save us, we have failed to learn the lessons of Isaiah and of history. God alone is our refuge and strength.
I don't ordinarily agree with this guy too much, Oswald, but that's pretty well said. Okay, next, chapter 24 then becomes a look into the future. We'll look at that next week. It's about the tribulation. It's about the end time specifically. So it'll be interesting. Father, we thank you for this amazing book of Isaiah, and we thank you that we are able to stand here today and study it and learn from it to better understand your plan for history, for Israel, for the church, for the world, for the Babylonian end time system. And as it points us ahead to the kingdom, we're going to learn some amazing truths about what life is going to be like on planet Earth during the reign of the Messiah, the King, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, who's going to be ruling and reigning from his Davidic throne in Jerusalem, the capital of the world, for a thousand years. That's going to be such an amazing glorious time. But in the meantime, we're in this sinful, broken, fallen world, and we are here preparing ourselves to be in your presence for eternity by what we do here. First of all, it begins by believing in Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, that you help each one of us be aware for opportunities to be able to explain the gospel clearly and succinctly to people that they're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to your glory alone. We pray that people would be moved by that message as we were once moved by that message. But we know that that's, that's not our job. Our job is to present the truth, and your job is to open their heart to it and uh, give them the opportunity to believe. So I pray that you make us a part of that or help us to be a part of that program that you have set forth in bringing people to faith. Help us to be faithful to do that. Once again, Father, I pray for your blessing on everyone that's here today, and I pray for your blessing in the coming week. I pray that this Christmas season will be a season for each one of us as Christian believing families that where the emphasis is on Christ and not necessarily on the material aspects of the of the season, but especially for the little ones. It's an exciting time for them. And, and we pray that you would bless our families and the people that we know who are believers that, that this would be a meaningful time concerning the God-man, the God who became flesh and who saves us from our sins and grants us the opportunity to have eternal life. So we thank you for all of these things that you do for us. We thank you for the provision of our new pastor. I pray for him and his family as they walk alongside him in this ministry and make it possible for him to come into this house and be our pastor and teach the word and shepherd this flock. And we thank you for their presence with us today. I thank you for our elders and our deacons, and I pray that we lead well and that we serve well and that we do your will in all that we do in this house. So we thank you for everything that you do for us, and we thank you for your presence with us in this place today. In Jesus' name, amen.